Let's open our Bibles to um, Mark chapter 11. I've entitled this message, Oh, If You Had Only Known. We'll pick it up where Paul read for us earlier, the first 11 verses. Mark chapter 11, also known as the triumphal entry, often referred to as Palm Sunday. Now, when they came near Jerusalem to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out and two of his disciples, and he said to them, uh, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered, you will find a colt tied in which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, Well, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, we'll come back to that, he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside of the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosening the colt? So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments on it, and he sat in it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. I want you to take just a moment, if you have markers or whatever, because it's going to be one of those mornings where it's going to be back and forth to put this all together, I'd like you to mark on the Old Testament um, the book of Nehemiah which is, let me give you a little heads up, where Nehemiah is right after the book of Ezra and right before the book of Esther, or in that general area. And then, if you would mark Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 9, and in the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 24. As we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes you might get the feeling, well, if you've read one, why go on to the next one? But uh, what we learn is the detail that is brought out in some, and you really need all four to get a complete picture, and that's going to be the case this morning. As we look and talk about uh, the Gospel of Mark, we've mentioned that it's Probably really Peter's gospel, but Mark is writing it. It's fast moving. And again, the reoccurring word uh, in the gospel of Mark, we read in verse 3, when uh, they're talking about the donkey, they said, the Lord has need of it, and immediately. Now, you don't find that in Matthew, Luke, or John, only in Mark's gospel. As a matter of fact, the word immediately is used 36 times in the Gospel of Mark. And um, if you're looking at, and it only has 16 chapters, 
Matthew has the word immediately only 19 times, Luke 18 times, and John only has it seven times. So this word immediately is reoccurring. Um, Mark, different from the other gospels I went through this yesterday, draws our attention of the amount of demon-possessed people, references to Lucifer and Satan, uh, more than any. I can only find one chapter to where we are so far where there wasn't a chapter dealing with somebody who was demon-possessed, where the Lord, um, either directly or indirectly, on Wednesday night we talked about the woman from Tyre and Sidon, uh, the Lord didn't go to her house, um, and she was a Gentile, and pleaded with the Lord to uh, deliver her young little girl from this demon-possessed man, uh, this demon-possessed little girl. And the Lord just from a distance says, go home, she's free, the demon's gone. I could find only one chapter that didn't deal with the subject of demon possession. Um, in chapter eight, go back to chapter eight, verse one. The other thing that um, Mark brings out is a sheer magnitude of the people wherever he would go. Now on Wednesday night, we went to Tyre and Sodom. We went to the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities east of the Jordan. We went as far north as Caesarea Philippi, and now we're down in Jerusalem. Now by bus, this is no big deal. But when you're doing it by foot, this is a lot of moving around. But wherever Jesus went, the word was already ahead that he was coming. So I can only give you one verse, there are many, that shows the sheer magnitude of the multitudes wherever he went. And in verse one of chapter eight, it says, in those days the multitude, being very great, had nothing to eat. So we have the feeding of the 5,000, then the feeding of the 4,000, but it says men. So now, if there's one woman and one child, the feeding of the 5,000 becomes 15,000, and the feeding of the 4,000 becomes 12,000. And he feeds them all with a couple loaves and fishes. So this word spread like wildfire. So wherever he went, they would go ahead of him, gather all that were sick or demon-possessed, and just put them in a street, and hoping that they could just, you know, just touch the hem of his garment, and knowing that if this would happen, that they would be healed. We don't know how many people Jesus healed during his three-year ministry. Multitudes, hundreds at least, if not thousands. And Mark uh, tends to be the one that dwells on the masses that were there. Now what's interesting, after Jesus would heal a person, the problem was it affected his ability to reach out to more people. If you're taking notes, I'll just go through this quickly. Um, without exception, except our text this morning, um, the Lord would, after healing somebody or delivering somebody from a demon, he said, all right, uh, this is chapter one, verses 43 and 44. He strictly warned them and, and uh, sent him away at once. And he said, see that you say nothing to no one. In chapter three, he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Chapter five, he commanded them strictly, not that anyone should know it. 
chapter 7, verse 24. He entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Again in chapter 7, he commanded them that they should tell no one. Chapter 8, he sent him away to his house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. And chapter 8 again, then he charged them that they should tell no one who he was. Chapter 9, he commanded them that they should not tell not one thing that they had seen. And uh, in chapter 9 again, verse 30, he did not want anyone to know. Now this is without exception. Now the reason I do this, to get a complete picture of the triumphal entry um, from Mark's perspective, we need to turn over to the Gospel of Luke. So let's turn to Luke 19, and we'll have a little fuller picture of what happened with a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Pick it up in verse 28. Luke is going to give us quite a bit more detail. Remember, Mark is fast-moving to the point doesn't dwell on details. Luke, on the other hand, being a physician, would have been a little bit more precise, more informative. And we, it's the same story with more detail added. So if you're looking at verse 28 of 19, Luke's account, and when he had said this, he went up ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came to Bethage in Bethany the mountain called Olivet, all right? Mark doesn't tell us it's the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, say, go to the village opposite you, and when you enter, you'll find a colt tied, of which no one has ever sat. That's a miracle right there. Loose him and bring him here. And by the way, if anybody asks you, what are, why are you loosing him? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord is need of him. Uh, So those who were sent departed and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner, see, before it was just the people. Now Luke is telling us, no, it was the owner of the colt that addresses the two disciples. He said, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw down their garments on the colt and they sat Jesus on him. And he went, they spread their clothes on the road, down to verse 36. All right, one of the things that we want to learn as we teach through the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing about the Bible, is that um, we learn uh, as we repeat things. And for some of you, this is a very familiar study. For others, you're hearing it for the first time. But the Bible is a book about prophecy. This is a good place for an amen. And I want to just show you again how prophecy works in the Bible, especially how it intertwines with the New Testament. So I ask you to mark um, Zechariah chapter 9. We're just going to look at two verses there. Zechariah is towards the end of the Old Testament. It is right before the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is foretelling this event of Jesus riding on a donkey. In verse 9, we read, rejoice greatly, and that's exactly what's about to happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, the Messiah. He is just, having salvation, lowly, humbly, riding on a donkey, the foal of a colt. This is going to be fulfilled on this day. Matter of fact, it's being fulfilled on this day. Now that's in verse nine. If you go to verse 10, we read, and I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bulls shall be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This is yet future. So you have verse nine, a verse talking about his first coming, but one verse later, we have a gap of over 2,000 years, at least. And this is during the millennial 1,000 year reign when his kingdom will be from sea to sea over the whole earth. Matter of fact, it says your job during that period of time to the church in Revelation, he says, you're going to reign with him as kings and priests upon the earth. That's a promise to the church. So don't get the Michelangelo idea that you're sitting on some cloud plucking some harp. You're going to be very busy being about your father's business. At sort of administrative roles as the way I see it if we reign with him as kings and priests, oversight positions. My Bible says someday you're going to judge angels. And so he goes on to say, if you'll just be faithful now in the little things, it's sort of a testing ground, if you will. We're being tried right now. Will you hang in there when the going gets tough? Will you be faithful in little things, no matter what the Lord has given you to do? He says, if you'll be faithful in the little things now, then it will cause you to be faithful over more things later. And the more things later is a reference to the thousand-year millennial reign. I want to point this out because it's common. This is the rule rather than the exception to the rule that you can have two prophecies. One is already fulfilled, and that gives me confidence that the next one is also going to be fulfilled. Let's go back to Luke. And now in verse, we left off in verse 36, he's writing down, Mount of Olives is still there, we still walk a path, it's not the same path I'm sure, but it gets really close to the eastern gate, which is sealed up today. So we're in the general vicinity of uh, this uh, place that Jesus would have been coming down. Now, what I wanna draw to your attention in verse 37 is then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitudes, well here the multitudes are again. And it's not my notes, but one of the reasons they're even greater than what they were is the Lord had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember it says they were in Bethage and Bethany? Well, this is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. He's gonna go into the temple. Bible says he's gonna look around a little bit and then he's gonna go right back up. It says he's going back to Bethany. So he's staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus is alive again. And that news has spread like wildfire. And it's just um, added to the crowds. At this point, I want to share 
a contrast that unless you study the complete gospel of Mark, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the significance of the word immediately. And you're going to miss the significance of every time Jesus did a miracle, he says, stop. Don't tell anyone. All of a sudden, we got something completely different going on here. We find in verse 37, the multitudes are even greater. And they began to praise God with a loud voice, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, recognizing that they were quoting the psalm we read last week, which I think is an interesting coincidence, they, they recognized this is a messianic psalm. It can only be spoken about to the Messiah. I'll address that a little bit deeper in a second. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. Now these were the ones that were trying to trap Jesus. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Well, why would they want Jesus to rebuke his disciples? Because they're declaring, by quoting Psalm 118, that Jesus was the Messiah. And up till this time, what would he say? Nope, quiet, tell no man. Not here. Just the opposite. Because in the next verse, he answers the reason that he won't rebuke them. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if they would keep silent, and that's what he told them before, keep silent, that the stones would immediately cry out. Now I've said this many, many times from the pulpit, but don't you just wish. (laughs) They would have shut up just for a second (laughs) and wondering if he could get a singing stone. (laughs) Because this day is a very, very significant and important day. What's your point, Dwight? Up till this time, always without exception, tell no one. But now they're shouting it, quoting a messianic psalm, which I want you to go back to, Psalm 118. Give you a moment to get there. Let me tell you a little bit about the psalms. Like I mentioned this morning, Psalm 119 has 176 verses to it. And there's only two of them that don't have some reference to the word of God. Statutes, laws, commandments, um, his word. Psalm 118 is called a messianic psalm. I did a little research yesterday to see just how many messianic psalms there were. And I found out there are 22 of them. Psalm 22 is a really good example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, It's a reference to the Messiah, therefore a messianic psalm. Um, In verse 22, this is what they're quoting. Now, Israel would be very astute in their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. What they couldn't figure out is how he could come lowly and humbly in Isaiah 53, uh, be afflicted, Uh, Daniel 9 says he's going to be killed. And at the same time, what we just read in Zechariah 9, when he comes, his kingdom is going to be from sea to sea. What the Bible doesn't explain is that there's going to be two comings. Remember Daniel 12? It says when it gets to explaining Bible prophecy, Daniel wanted to know more. He says, sorry, Daniel, you you won't be able to figure it out. Not until the time of the end. Shut up and sealed until then. Many will travel to and fro. 
Knowledge will increase. None of the wicked will understand. But those who are wise will understand. What do we understand now? Oh, there's two comings. First coming as a suffering servant. Then coming to take his church. And then his church comes with him at the second coming of Christ. But this was not explained um, straight out. It's there if you have a good knowledge of the scriptures. Another good place for an amen. So here in verse 22, he's actually going to quote this in Luke 20 to the religious leaders that were upset with him because he was not rebuking the people for quoting this psalm. It says, the stone which the builders rejected, that would be the scribes and the Pharisees, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day? Oh yeah, there's one special day that Jesus is going to change his mind about allowing himself to be declared. Instead of don't say it, he says not only do they have to say it right now, if they don't rejoice, then the very rocks in the mountains, they're going to do it. Somebody's going to do it. Why? Because this was the day. The one day that he allowed it. And um, we will rejoice, that's what they were doing. Save now is another way of saying Hosanna. I pray, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's go back to Luke 19 and fit this in with um, the context of the story. We find they knew, the people and the religious leaders both knew that Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm about the Messiah. That's why the Pharisees were upset. Rebuke your teachers, your followers. They actually think you're the Messiah. And the people believed it because of all the mighty works that Jesus had done. In Luke 19, verse 39, the Pharisees um, asked Jesus again to rebuke them, but he doesn't do it. Now, in verse 41, what settles in is, is he's receiving this worship from the people, but he knows something they don't know. This would have been Palm Sunday. In just five days, and this is verse 41 and 42, and the reason that I called this study this morning, oh, if you had only known. It changes. The mood swing changes from Hosanna, praise the Lord, to verse 41. He draws near the city and he begins to weep over the city. Why is he weeping when everybody else is rejoicing? And he said, oh, if you had only known, even you, and especially this, your day, this day is different. This is the day that the Lord has made, a special day. The things that could have been made for your peace, but now they're hidden for your eyes. He knows the fickleness of people. They can be one thing one minute, and they can be another thing another minute. How is that? Bob? Good place for an amen. <laughs> and the people that were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, 
on the triumphal entry would be in the mixed crowd that are gonna be five days later saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And he knows it all too well. John 1.11 says he came unto his own and his own received him not. There was much peer pressure from the religious institution to kill Jesus Christ because he was a threat to them personally. He had to go. So we read um, here, he knew what was going to happen. He weeps over the city, his own city, knowing that they would reject him. Knowing that, he now foretells in verse 43 and 44 their future. Let's read it in 43. Because they did not know the time of the, of the, if he had only known, implying, of course, that they should have known. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now Jesus prophesies. He said, because you didn't recognize that this was the day that could have been made for your peace. You should have known, and yet because you're, you, you didn't know, because, and this last part is very telling, you did not know the time. Now the implication here is this. They should have known the time. He says, the whole city of Jerusalem is going to be surrounded and the temple is going to be destroyed. And 38 years later, in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. And Israel has just recently come back into the land, but they've been out of the land since 70 AD. Now, even though this was the day Jesus allowed the multitudes to acknowledge that he was the Messiah, Um, he now foretells their destruction. Here's the question. How? If he's he's saying because you didn't know the, the time, he's implying that they should have known the time. My question is, how were they to know the time that this was the day? The answer to that question goes back to the book of Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel was a student of prophecy. Daniel 9, verse 1, Daniel said, I understood, verse 2, by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that they would be in captivity for 70 years. So Daniel, nobody wanted to listen to Daniel. Daniel, everywhere he went, gave bad news. Nobody wanted to hear it. He says, you guys are going into captivity for 70 years, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. He's called the weeping prophet. He had nothing good to say except you guys are going into judgment. Daniel has been there this whole time, 70 years. He went with the first group of people. 70 years has come, 70 years has gone. Now Daniel, knowing the time is up, writes Daniel chapter nine. The first 19 verses is nothing more than a prayer of repentance, basically, saying, you know what, Jeremiah was right all along. We should have listened to him. We should have repented. 
we should have not tried to fight against Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, you told us with Jeremiah, you're going to use Nebuchadnezzar as your instrument. You told us not to fight against him. We decided to listen to the false prophets instead. You see, they told us what we wanted to hear. Does that sound familiar today? You know, when you would talk about judgment and how bad things are getting in the world today, and we think of um, the implications, especially if you're a father or mother bringing up young kids, uh, you have the hope of them growing and having their own kids and so on and so forth. And we sort of hold back when we shouldn't. When we see that certain signs that are out there and warning signals where people want to gravitate more, as the scripture says, in the end they won't endure sound doctrine. Hmm, endure sound doctrine. It's interesting to me. Something we have to endure, why? Because it's not all that happy clappy, what Jesus said about this generation. But it's true. And whether we're young or old or whatever, we should always speak the truth in love. Another good place for an amen. But I want you to know it's not going to be popular, no more, no more than it was in Jeremiah's time was it popular. This generation is different. Jesus' generation was different. Here, in Daniel chapter 9, the first 19 verses basically is a prayer of repentance. Lord, you were right, we were wrong, and as a nation, um, we repent. And the prayer sort of escalates. By the time you get to 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, of your city, and be called by your name. Daniel only wants to know one thing. 70 years has come. 70 years are gone. Let's go home. In the middle of the prayer, he's interrupted by the angel Gabriel. He says, Daniel, I've been sent to inform you in verse 22, and I want to give you skill so that you can understand what God is going to do with Israel. And at the beginning of your prayer, I was sent out And I want you to know you're greatly beloved. So before there's information, there's affirmation. What sort of affirmation? Do you know how much you're loved? You know, that's not spoken about enough. You know that God really does love you. Why would he love you any more than anybody else? Well, he's just love, and he's not a respecter of persons. That means he loves me just as much as Mike Law. Even though I think that God should love me more than Mike Law, he loves Mike Law just as much as he loves me. He's no respecter of persons. God is love. Daniel, I want you to know this. And you need to know this too this morning. You are one of a kind. Unless you're identical twins with identical DNA, you are one of a kind. And God loves you because... Value is attributed to something because of its rarity. And you're rare. There's only one of you. And as far as God is concerned, that makes you priceless. And if you were the only one, he would have come and died if you were the only one that was ever here. So Daniel, first of all, affirmation before revelation. You're greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now he's going to give him something a whole lot more than what he was asking for. In verse 24, the 77s here, the Hebrew is a word for, for a period of um, weeks or, or 77s or years. 
Actually, it should be read, 490 years are determined for your people in your holy city. It's specific, it's not Gentile. I'm going to work with Israel for a period of 490 years. I'll accomplish six things during that time. Um, To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. There's the outline over the 490 years to finish up all prophecy. Well, all prophecy hasn't been finished up yet. But now, when we get to verse uh, 25, we read, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be basically 69 weeks. 69 is uh, 483 years. And after that period of time, as clear as it can be, the Messiah is going to show up. Uh, The street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So you have to have a starting point. Because this verse tells us they're in Babylon. There's got to be a command given to go back and rebuild the city and start counting when that command is given. So that brings us to, and you want to turn back now to, the book of Nehemiah, if you marked it earlier. 69 weeks. And we have to have a starting point. So we go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is in the citadel in Sushan, so it's Persian. The king's name is Artaxerxes chapter 2. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. And what you couldn't do as a cupbearer is ever show any grieving or mourning that you were sad in the presence of the king. Simply wasn't allowed. You'd lose your job or your head, one of the two. So it came to pass in a month of night, Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king, and I had been sad in the presence before him. And therefore the king said to him, he read the body language all over Nehemiah, why is your face sad? Are you sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. What's the problem? And Nehemiah says, then I became dreadfully afraid. Not acceptable to to grieve in front of the king. And I said to the king, well, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah had just gotten report. They could go back now, but less than 50,000 of them went. And nobody's doing anything. So he just gets this report back. Yeah, they're back. Nobody's doing nothing. And uh, it's it's just too much for Nehemiah to bear. And... um, You know, he's found out that he's sad over this news. Then the king said to me, what do you want, Nehemiah? What's your request? Well, good news, he's not going to (laughs) die. I like this. So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king. He did both at the same time. Ever been in that place? (laughs) Um, Pray without ceasing. 
Okay, Lord, I got my shot here. What do I say? What do I do? I'm praying to the Lord, and I said to the king, well, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king said to him, and the queen was sitting beside him, well, how long are you going to be gone for? Are you going to return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So the king says, you can go. Daniel doesn't tell us the time he's coming back, but it's going to be enough time that he's going to build his own house there. I know that much. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it please the king, I need letters. Here's the command right here from Artaxerxes himself, king of the world. Let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they might permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. And I want a letter sent to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. He's got to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple for the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. So he's going to build his own house, so he's going to be there for quite a while. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God that was upon me. Back to Daniel chapter 9. Verse 25 tells us, Know therefore, Daniel, that from the going forth of the command, that command was given on March 14th, 445 B.C., 483 years later, predicated upon a Babylonian calendar made up of 360 rather than 365, you do the math of 483 years times the 360, counting in the um, cycles, lunar cycles and uh, holidays that they would or would not count as one or two, and you come up with 173,880 days. And that's telling us here, if you have the starting point, then you count out to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. So in other words, let's go back to Luke. What did Jesus say? He says, the city is going to be destroyed. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. They were supposed to have known. They should have been studying especially the religious leaders, should have been teaching something like this. There's a guy doing an awful lot of miracles around here, raising people from the dead, walking on the water, a blind sea, the lame walk. He just raised a guy from the dead the other day. I think we should be looking for some guy riding on a little white donkey if they were good with their prophecy. Good place for an amen. They should have been aware of the signs of the times for their generation. The reason I called this Oh, if you had only known. There's, he's weeping. Jesus wept twice. This is one of the times. Oh, if you had only known that this was your day, a very specific day down to the day. That day would have been April 6, 32 AD. We call it Palm Sunday. To me, this was one of the greatest, most powerful prophecies in the Bible that says only Jesus Christ of Nazareth can be the Jewish Messiah. Another good place for an amen. I mean, what are the probabilities that it could be anybody else? Nobody else was riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives that day and quoting Psalm 118. No, that's just two. The probability factors of, of that happening to one man on that day and it not being Jesus, I don't think so. So then we read, 
and um, the street will be built again, even in troublesome times. Well, if you read the whole book of Nehemiah, there's always spiritual opposition when you're working for the Lord. Here it was two guys named Shambhalat and Tobiah. Their whole job was to discourage the builders of the wall. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, um, they encouraged the people. They taught them the word of God. And their heart changed. And it says when their heart changed, the people all of a sudden had a mind to work. So they went from being, you know, (laughs) apathetic and indifferent and only concerned about their self. Once they heard the word of God and they thought, this is what it's all about. We're supposed to put things back together. 52 days. They built the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days after the encouragement of Ezra and Nehemiah. Brings us to verse 26. Now after the 62 and 7, after 483 sevens, or 173,880 days, something's going to happen. The Messiah will be cut off. Well, this was Palm Sunday. Five days later, they'll be calling for his execution. So after that period of time, and the people of the prince who is to come, this is a reference to Rome, shall destroy the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. So we have here, let's go back to Luke now, chapter 19 again, and let's piece this together. Luke 19. Daniel tells us that Messiah, the, the Greek word there is executed. I mean, the Messiah is going to be executed? Why? And it says, not for himself. Who did Jesus die for? Well, me and you. Pilate examined him and says, there's nothing wrong with this man. Thief on the cross says, we're guilty of our crimes, not this man. He was without sin. So he didn't die for himself. He died for you and me. And then the Lord prophesied exactly what Daniel said would happen. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, all you have to do is be a history student Anything significant happened in 70 AD on the 9th of Av, the very same day that Solomon's temple, well, that's a coincidence, huh? Solomon's temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av, and this temple here also on the very same day. I'm pretty sure it's just a coincidence. Not a chance. And so prophesying here because you didn't know, and again, I want to Try to put the empathy of the Lord's heart in here. People, if you'd only known, if you'd only been studying the Bible, if you'd only been watching and looking for my coming, uh, this this day was made for your peace, but now it's gonna be hidden from your eyes. It's all part of God's master plan that includes the Gentiles. But Israel, since that time, has been out of the land since 70 AD. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that they're going to come back again. I'll just quote it. Matthew, well, you can turn to it. We're gonna go there anyway. Go back to Matthew 24. 
verse 32, he says, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer's near. I would say when you know that all the leaves fall in the ground and you have some snow on top of it, you know that winter's right around the corner and so is Thanksgiving. Another way of saying the same thing. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. What's near? A fig tree is always emblematic of the nation of Israel. When you see Israel come back into the land and begin to bud and bloom again. Mark Twain went there in the 1800s. said, Jerusalem, why would anybody want to go to Israel? All I saw was sheep eating rocks everywhere I went. Nothing else. But then the people came back. They drained the swamps. And they began planting forests. Today it's the fourth largest producers of fruit in the entire world. We go there to study how they do agriculture. They can grow tomatoes already salted. (laughs) And it says the land will become like the Garden of Eden. Israel's beautiful today. Parts of it are just unbelievably beautiful. So when you see Israel but again, well, there hasn't been an Israel. There's so much confusion in the church today about the second coming of Christ and the rapture. Why? Remember Daniel said that you're not going to understand it till the end, the last times? Well, imagine being a Bible teacher in the year 500 A.D., 1000 A.D. There's no Israel. How do you explain the book of Revelation? How do you explain the book of Daniel? They don't exist. There was always a small group of people say, well, it doesn't exist now. But if God's word says it, then it's going to happen. I want to amen on that one. Even though we don't see it now, if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So he tells us here, when Israel comes back into the land, they've been there now for 70 years, since May 14th, 1948. Assuredly, I say unto you, this generation, we are that generation, will by no means pass away till all will be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. All right, well, that's a good Bible study that tells us of the history of Israel and them coming back into the land. But I want to make it applicable for you and me as we close this up this morning. We are in the same danger, especially the American church, of missing and not being ready for an event that is called the rapture of the church. Just as Israel was not watching for the Messiah the first time because their lack of knowledge of the book of Daniel, so today the church at large is not ready for the look, looking for the Lord's coming. Do you know that most of Christianity, mainline Protestantism, I grew up a Protestant, mainline Roman Catholicism, they do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. If you ask them to teach on Daniel, they'll scratch their head. And so there's no teaching on it, and so there's no awareness or looking for it. Now I'm not talking about, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm talking about the church at large. But they call themselves Christian, and yet they don't, they take it either an allegorical view or they spiritualize the book of Revelation, making it of no effect. Now, having said that, Um, this leads me to 
a study that I listened to this week. T.A. McMahon was just with us. And um, we were reminiscing. And I said, you know, T.A., I got good memories of Dave. But my favorite one of all time is that he was a regular speaker when Tim LaHaye was still alive um, and Dr. Tommy Heiss. For many years, I would go down to the pre-trib conference in Dallas, Texas. About 25 plus years ago, the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture was under attack. And Dr. Wolverd, president of it for over 50 years, and Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice and Arnold Fruchenbaum, I mean, some of the leading theologians in the world, said we have to take a stand. And we need to have this conference once a year to reinforce what the Bible teaches concerning the pre-trib rapture. So they asked Dave Hunt to speak, and they wanted Dave to speak on a subject that was controversial to their group. Now, what was controversial to the group was not the preacher of rapture. They both believed that. But most of them did not hold that the rapture was in the Olivet Discord. The Olivet Discourse begins in chapter 24 and 25. So Dave's job was to get up and teach on the rapture, in the Olivet Discord, that was his title. And boy, did that get people's attention. The way it worked is you had to present your theses, everybody had a copy of what you were gonna teach on. And then afterwards, after he would present his point of view, then there would be a period of time of question and answers. And kiddingly, he would said, Tommy is throwing me to the, my name's not even Daniel, and he's throwing me to the lions first thing in the morning. He gave me the first session hoping nobody would show up, those kind of things, because this was a contentious debate with two sides that agreed on the same thing. They both believed in the pre-trib rapture, but not in the Olivet Discourse. All I can tell you is I, as I was reminiscing with T.A. when he was here for the stake and study, I said, do you remember the time that Dave gave that Bible study in Dallas on the rapture in Matthew chapter 24? And then the Q&A afterwards, mostly silent. And then finally, after he had presented it, it was one of the most powerful, ingenious Bible studies. I forgot how good it was. I just listened to it again yesterday. It blew my mind just how good it was. And basically, when all is said and done, Tommy says, yeah, but do you remember how it ended with the Q&A? And I said, no, how did it end? He says, don't you remember Chuck Missler getting up and taking reaching in his back pocket and holding up a white flag and going like this. (laughs) That's how good the study is. My time's running out. I want you to listen to it. We went on the Brian call. You can download this. I strongly encourage you in the same way that uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice and, and Dave Hunt want to equip you so that you can give an answer for everything, especially as it pertains to the pre-trib rapture, especially in um, um, the Olivet Discourse. One of Dave's opponent who didn't agree with him before he gave this Bible study changed his mind during the Bible study. And the sharp contention is that uh, the rapture isn't there, but he explained that the Greek word, Dave knows no Greek. He just knows his Bible so well. He got up and he says to, to uh, Dave Hunt, he says, you know, Dave, 
In the Greek, the first three words, but of that day, in the Greek it implies a complete change of thought. And when that was presented, it really undermines uh, the whole argument not having the rapture in Matthew chapter 24. To me, it's always been a no-brainer because Chuck has always taught it such and it always made perfect sense to me. So as we close this morning, let's not make the mistake that Israel made. The Lord says there were consequences. There were consequences because you didn't know Daniel, you didn't know Jeremiah, you didn't teach the whole counsel of God. The same danger is applicable for the church today unless they really know their Bible. And so here, um, but as that day and hour, no one knows the time of the coming, they're, they're talking about um, the second coming of Christ and the rapture. Both, by the way, are presented here, both the second coming, and Dave does an excellent job of explaining why that's so. Um, I, could, I can tell you to the day Jesus came the first time, April 6, 32 AD. Daniel clearly tells us. But Daniel chapter 12 tells us the exact day that Jesus is coming the second time. It'll be 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation. It's going to happen, just like the Lord said. What don't we know? Oh, the time of the rapture. No one knows that. It says, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We like to say that the rapture is imminent. Well, what does that mean? It means it could happen at any time. But he says it's going to happen at a time, and this was Dave's strongest argument, when there's peace and prosperity, and people will be thinking, what time is the game on this afternoon? (laughs) And our thoughts aren't really towards that, but we're caught up in everything but that. It'll be a time of normality, just like it was in the days of Noah, and it caught them unaware, so that they weren't watching and ready. Again, I entitled this this morning, Oh, If You Had Only Known. My heart breaks for much of the church today because of their lack of understanding of where we are in time, the lateness of the hour, and we can get up and get caught up in the cares and the riches and not be found ready. Did the Lord warn us about that? Let's just read through it quickly and we'll close. For as it was... Um, In the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. This is about the rapture. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that the flood entered and carried them away. And did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house would have known the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, so here's the whole sum up of our message this morning. It's not about the history of Israel and the Israel missing them the first time. This is for us, gang. Therefore, be also ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. This can certainly not be the second coming because they will be expecting him. 
Uh, the last thing on planet Earth during the last part of the Great Tribulation is a world that's completely destroyed. And um, here is picturing a time where people are eating and drinking and giving a marriage. That's not the second coming. It doesn't make any sense. It's a picture of, of a time when people are living everyday life. And it's just going to catch them just like that. So what do we do? Well, I'll close with the question. Are you ready? If the Lord would come today, could you honestly say you're looking for his coming? And it could be today. Good place to say amen. We'll close it. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through Matt, the, the gospel of Mark. And as we um, go our separate ways today, I pray that you would um, just bless your word to our hearts. And um, Lord, equip us. Help us to be Daniels and, and know the scriptures that we can be in that place of watching for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.